Well, if you want to find your uh, Bibles and uh, our smartphone, turn to Colossians chapter 3, verse 13. So this is the part of the sermon where we have a little audience participation. And uh, so get ready to put up your hands if this is true of you. So last week and the last seven days, um, how many of you made at least a little bit of money? Full-time, part-time job, okay, hands down. We'll be taking an offering in a minute. How many, of you, how many of you in the last week uh, passed a test? A couple of, I was looking for the kids, and no kids here. <laughs> All right, in the last week, how many of you uh, either watched a son or daughter or a grandchild score a goal in an athletic competition? Yeah, that's exciting, wasn't it? All right, in the last seven days, how many of you sinned? It was slow, but it got there. Uh, last question, last, those of you who are married, in the last seven days, how many of your spouses sinned? <laughs> the guys are looking, is this okay to say? I mean, you should be able to put your hand up just theologically, right? Yeah, I, I didn't see my wife sin at all in the last week, but I'm sure she did just because it's pretty tough to go a whole week without sinning, at least in, in, in the mind. Sin is so common, isn't it? Isn't it? I mean, you look in the mirror and you're like, man, I can't believe I did that, or I can't believe I failed to do that, or I can't believe I said that, or... I mean, it's, it's, it's as common as oxygen. And because it is, it's common in marriage. Can I get an amen? <laughs> yeah, you don't want to answer to that at lunchtime today. But it is. Sin is common in marriage. And I pray for our married children, our elders who are all married, uh, you in your marriage. One of the things that I often pray for is God help them to be quick to seek forgiveness and quick to offer forgiveness. Why? Because sin is common. So forgiveness needs to be common in marriage since sin is common in marriage. The book that uh, Philip Yancey wrote, I think, 30 years ago, What's So Amazing About Grace, in it he shared a, a, a comment that his wife Janet made at one point. She said this. She said, I think it's pretty amazing that I have forgiven you for some of the dastardly things you've done. And I... I'm listening to that thinking, yeah, but you've probably done some dastardly things too. She seemed surprised that she had to forgive him for those things. Philip says in response to this in his book, he says, forgiveness is no sweet platonic ideal to be dispensed to the world like perfume sprayed from a fragrance bottle. It is achingly difficult how many of us would say, yep, been there, done that? It is achingly difficult. Long after you have forgiven someone, the wound lives on in memory. Above all, forgiveness is an unnatural act, and my wife was protesting its blatant unfairness. I would disagree with him and say it's not an unnatural act. It is a supernatural act. It is one of, I was just talking with Keith before the service, 
To me, it is one of the three top things that sets followers of Jesus apart from the world, noticeably sets them apart from the world. By the way, can I commend to you a movie that's right now on Amazon Prime? It's called Turn of the Cheek. Uh, it's, uh, the acting's not real great. It's apparently made by a faith studio. I kept looking at Betty and saying, does this come out of Hollywood? I mean, they're, they're talking about Jesus Christ. They're talking about salvation uh, and not distorted Hollywood's way. I mean, it was, it was amazing. Uh, but bring your tissue box. Uh, the story more than makes up for the uh, acting limitations. It, it's just phenomenal. And it was a good week for me as I prepared this message on forgiveness, so watch it. Um, when I prepared this uh, months ago, um, going to do two sermons in this mini-series for husbands and husbands-to-be and two sermons for wives or wives-to-be. Well, by Monday afternoon this week, I was convinced, okay, this is not just a sermon for wives. This is a sermon for husbands, too. Um, and by Wednesday afternoon, I was convinced that this is a sermon for everybody. So scratch the marriage focus of this, although we'll do a bunch of marriage applications in the conversation but all of us know what it's like to be wronged and if we're honest all of us know what it's like to wrong others and need forgiveness and so the a, a message on forgiveness is urgent I think for every one of us the title of this message is only Christ's forgiveness can slay your indignation our text is just going to be a, a single verse Colossians chapter 3, uh, verse 13. Make allowances for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Let's ask God for his help. Fathers, we've sung this morning, you are worthy of all of our praise, our adoration, glory, honor, wisdom, power, riches, all belong to you. Everything we have, who we are, all been borrowed from you. And, and we look through your resume, and there's not a single shortcoming in it anywhere. There's, there's no flaw, there's no omission, there's no, man, I wish he was that. Or we might have those thoughts, but they're all thoughts that are coming out of our own human weaknesses. You, you've got nothing that's flawed. You've got nothing that has been neglected or omitted. And we worship you because of that. And when we come to look at ourselves in the mirror, we see blemishes on our faces, but those aren't the ones that really matter. It's the blemishes inside that we have been poisoned by. And left to ourselves, that contamination would have crucified us. 
And yet you saw fit to crucify your son instead so that we could be forgiven. Not for an incident, not for an instance, not for a moment, but for forever, as we sung this morning. Christ is mine forevermore. I will admit, as I think many of my brothers and sisters here will admit, those watching will admit, that we have found that there's little in life that is more difficult than letting go of a wrong and not just forgetting about it, but being able to say, I forgive you for treating me like that. As Yancey says, it's, it, it doesn't, it's not natural. It doesn't make sense to us. And yet when we look back at your forgiveness of us, suddenly it becomes not only possible, but doable in your power. And I pray that you would help us today. There are I'm, I'm sure there are some of us, maybe many of us, who come to this subject kicking and screaming. So we really have no interest in making amends. We have no interest in relieving someone else of their obligation to us. And so would you, by the Holy Spirit, by your word, overcome our defenses and our reservations and our opposition to anything that you tell us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to give you a definition that's mine. It's been taken from others and compacted and condensed. To forgive, this is what I say when I forgive you. This is what you say when you forgive someone. I no longer hold anything against you. And that's a very unexpected attitude, right? When we think about being wrong, we harbor anger, bitterness maybe. I no longer hold anything against you or require anything further from you. That's an unexpected account. And what I mean by that is that when we've been wronged, somebody owes us something. When someone has done something against us, in our minds, there's a debt to be taken care of. And it may be that account gets squared up simply by the person coming to us and saying, I was wrong, please forgive me. Or I, I want you to know I realize I stepped over a, bound there, a boundary there. Or I, 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 I said something I shouldn't have. I did something I shouldn't. It may, may be as simple as that. But the really grievous offenses and hurts are pretty deep in our souls. And oftentimes the account is greater than that in our minds. What I mean by that is we not only want them to admit they were wrong, but we want them to pay. And we're willing to make them pay if given the opportunity. So real forgiveness means I don't hold it against you. 
and I no longer expect any accounting from you. We're good. We're even. We're squared away. Now we're going to take, uh, before we do that, let's talk about two, what I call cultural untruths about forgiveness. And that's important uh, because forgiveness is such a big deal. It's important we get, we get it right from a Bible standpoint. Two cultural untruths about forgiveness. The first one is, I'll put these two in questions. Should I forgive myself? Should I forgive myself? Now, this is an idea that has, uh, was birthed in the psychological community about 25 years ago, but it has made its way into the church forcibly in about the last 15. This idea that I, I've done something in the past and I'm agonizing about it. I don't like that I did it. And so I feel the need to forgive myself. Well, the Bible really doesn't present any category for that. I'm not two people. There's not this me over here that forgives this me. It doesn't really make sense. It kind of makes folly out of, out of forgiveness. Um, the other thing that it does is it undermines the forgiveness that God extends to us. And what I mean by it is if we have repented and we've asked God's forgiveness, end of story. I think it's John 6.36, Jesus said, if the Son sets you free, you are not partially free. You are free indeed. It's a done deal. I think what's behind the desire to forgive myself is that, uh, let's be honest here, this is a morning for candor about ourselves, is that most of us, even the ones of us, and this includes me, have a, a, a kind of inferiority complex. I've discovered over the years that even in that, there is a high opinion of ourselves, you know, the inferiority complex, we're kind of looking for people to kind of puff us up because we're preoccupied with ourselves. And we have a high, we by and large have a high opinion of ourselves. And now we, we look back and we've done something in the past that disgusts us and we want to distance ourselves from that. And I'm convinced that the greatest hope that we have for spiritual growth and delight in our faith is to look ourselves in the eye and say, this is who I am. I did this because this is who I am. It's not always who I am. It's not the full picture of me, but this is partly who I am. The greatest appreciation of the gospel is when we have the greatest appreciation of the magnitude of our wickedness. And conversely, when we don't see ourselves all that bad, the gospel becomes not so great. Andy Stanley says it this way about, should I forgive myself? You don't have to forgive yourself. Yourself has already been forgiven by Jesus Christ. The other question is, again, the second cultural untruth, is do I forgive others for myself, for my benefit? Now, this has become extremely popular, again, in the last maybe 20 years. And I think Oprah has a lot to do with this. I really do. I'm going to read you four quotes and two of them are from Christians. 
that basically make the argument that I forgive you, not for you primarily, not for God primarily, but primarily for me. And you forgive me, not primarily for me or for God, but for yourself. It's this, it's this beneficiary thing that maybe if we convince people that it's to their own benefit, they'll be more inclined, more prone to forgive. So Gandhi, for example, said the weak can never forgive. Forgiveness is the attribute of the strong. Now, down through history, that's not been seen as true except in the Christian culture. Weakness has been viewed as subhuman, as abnormal, as, as something to be ridiculed. Gandhi, to his credit, made perceived weakness something great. I mean, he basically... Uh, dragged India out from under the British Empire and created the new and modern India, not through battle, not through forces, but through fasting and through peaceful protests and so forth. The approach to change in the culture and the, and the community that Martin Luther King adopted from Gandhi. But basically Gandhi was saying, make forgiveness something that makes you great and then you'll be more inclined to do it. So when you forgive, you're strong. Pat yourself on the back. Jonathan Huey, forgive others not because they deserve forgiveness, but because you deserve peace. Now, it's true that forgiveness can bring peace, but is that the goal? Lewis Smeads passed away about 20 years ago, taught uh, for 25 years at Fuller Seminary very noted Christian leader, he says, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that prisoner is you. Again, I'm seeing Oprah over all of this. I forgive you for me. T.D. Jakes. I think the first step to understand is that forgiveness does not exonerate the perpetrator. Forgiveness liberates the victim. It is a gift you give yourself. Now, I, I, I want to distance myself from both of these cultural untruths and say the Bible presents a different picture. The Bible presents a picture whereby we, as broken sinners, forgive other broken sinners for the glory of God and for the good of those who need forgiven. That's just my thought. All right, we're going to take this verse and we're going to divide it up by the two sentences that are in it for our main points. The first one being, we should make allowances for other sinners. We should make allowances for other sinners. Again, verse 13, make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Now, If you have the New Living Translation like I do, that's an individual sentence. But in the Greek language, this began, this sentence began at verse 12 and continues on through verse 13, and it might continue through verse 14. We're not sure because the original Greek didn't have punctuation. So let me back up to 12 a second. Since God chose you, you Christians, to be the holy people he loves, you must Clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, that should be meekness, and patience, comma, 
making allowance for each other's faults and forgiving anyone who offends you. In other words, this is the outworking, the, the fleshing out of clothing ourselves with tenderhearted mercy, kindness, humility, patience, uh, uh, meekness, and patience. Now, we, we talked before about how justification, which is the, the, the work of God totally by himself to make you right with him through faith in Christ. Justification, to justify means to be declared innocent. God justifies you and I through the blood of Jesus Christ by our faith in him. Justification is a solo operation by God. But, but then when we get saved from justification to when we die, that season is called sanctification. Sanctify meaning make, made holy, being made holy. We are being made more and more like Jesus Christ. That's a joint effort between God and ourselves. And so here, Paul is emphasizing the part that we do. We must clothe ourselves with tenderhearted mercy, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, comma, making allowance for others' faults. In other words, this make, looking at the person who has wronged me, I make allowance for them. Now, I love that the translators have used this line at the very beginning of verse 13, because if you have a more literal translation, it simply says bearing with one another or forbearing with one another. It's a right word, but to English speakers in 21st century America, that sounds a lot like simply tolerating, putting up with. He's a strange bird, but we just have to live with him. I, I, I can barely stand to be around her, but we just have to suck it up and get by. That's not what he's talking about here. To, to make allowance means to sympathetically appreciate his or her situation, his or her weakness, and then respond in forgiveness accordingly. That this opens the door for us to forgive by seeing the person not just as an adversary, not just as a critic, but as someone in a different light. There's someone made in the image of God, first and foremost, and secondly, there might be this going on in their lives, there might be this taking place, they might have this kind of propensity, this kind of weakness, and because I make allowances for them, forgiveness becomes a lot more possible. They're not just evil, they're not just insensitive, they're not just a bully, they're not just thoughtless. And so I conclude something else about him or her. And now we have the prospect of weakness. Now let me, let me bring this back to marriage. As I said, we're going to do some marriage applications in this. Because I, I think for those of us who are married, there's, there's no place where we have to more frequently forgive than our spouse. No one that we have to more frequently forgive than our spouse. Because we are thrust into this human relationship that is more intense and, and more present than any other human relationship. I don't care if you have good friends that you work with or neighbors that you get along with or classmates that you're with. When you get married, you're, you're in each other's business all the time. And there's a reason that before you got married, you didn't care one whit about how toothpaste was handled. And then you do. It, 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 you would have never had a conversation when you were dating about how the toilet paper is to be hung. But after marriage, this has become a huge issue, kind of like racism. And so the prospect of needing to forgive this, yeah, yeah, let's be honest, 
Nothing prepares us for marriage and how we get along in marriage, does it? I mean, we, we date for six months, a year, two years, three years. That's a terrible preparation for marriage. Because it's all theater. We, two people get up on a stage, we put on other people's clothes, we put on a mask, and we quote lines that other people have written for us. And we're on our best behavior. And then we get married, and we step down off the stage, we put our own clothes back on, we take the mask off, and this person that we've been hiding for three years shows up. And my wife goes, who are you? And what did you do with that guy I was dating? I mean, I don't know of a better preparation for marriage. I, I just know that it's not a great one. Because now we're, now we're living next to this person, we're sleeping with this person, we're eating meals with this person, or we're pooling money with this person, and all kinds of opportunities to utterly irritate the other person occur. By the way, we don't just need to forgive our mates of sins. We need to forgive them about all other kinds of things that they just annoy us, they irritate us, they they, they kind of flip our buttons and trip our triggers. And yes, we need to forgive those too because here's what happens if we don't. Two years down the road, six months down the road, 12 years down the road, we're having a quarrel and all of a sudden you find yourself saying, yeah, well, I remember six months ago or six years ago you did X. And X is, if you're living a healthy married life, X has been forgiven. And there's no room for that showing up in a future conversation. I mean, this is hard stuff in marriage, but this is the calling on our lives. If we are to forgive our brothers and sisters, how much more the brothers and sisters that we live with and Making allowances, place to start. Paul says in verse 12 that the cause of this change in attitude, this prospect of forgiveness, is not just because you're a nice guy or a nice girl, but because you're a new person. Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you're, you're a new creation. Christians can and do forgive because they're new people. The second sentence in verse 13, my second main point is forgive as a sinner. And this is really the thrust of my message this morning. Forgive as a sinner. Remember, so he first says make allowance for others' faults. Forgive the person who offends you. Remember, he ties this with it. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must Forgive others. There's a man in prison in upstate New York today who was there, he is there because of murder, but that's not how he started out. He started out as an arsonist, and he was a very good arsonist because this went on for three years and he never got caught, and he set almost 1,500 fires. 
We know this because he kept meticulous records about every fire that he sent. Some were small, just trash cans in the city streets and others, little larger vacant lots in the city where there was debris and he would light it, but others were buildings. And he kept records about the date, the times, the weather, which fire company was called out, and what equipment they used to put it out. And then he graduated to murder. The first time there was a car sitting double parked in a Bronx street, he went up, pulled out a 44 caliber pistol, and killed the two women who were sitting in the car. And then he killed again. And then he killed again. And as his crimes made their way to the headlines of the newspapers, the city's nightclubs started emptying out, the city's parks started emptying out. No one wanted to venture out at night. And by the time he had killed the fifth, they realized that he was singling out brunette women. And women in New York City started dyeing their hair blonde or buying blonde wigs to go out. He would taunt the police officers by leaving notes at the scenes of the crime. He would send letters to the newspapers. He called himself the son of Sam. And by the time he was done, there were seven, six people dead and seven injured, one paralyzed for life. They caught him in 1977 and he was very nonchalant about it. Well, you caught me. And the next day he gave a full confession. He went before the courts in 1978 and he was sentenced to six consecutive life sentences. But you would not recognize David Berkowitz if you went to see him today in his prison. Because in 1987, someone approached him in the prison yard and said, David, Christ Jesus loves you and wants to forgive you. And he handed him a little New Testament with the Psalms and Proverbs in it. And he said, Christ sent me to tell you this. And he walked away. Now David Berkowitz knew exactly what he had done, understood the ramifications, understood the implications, understood the awfulness of it by now. And he could not imagine in his wildest dreams that God could forgive him for what he had done. He began to read through that New Testament, read through the scriptures, and he is seeing about this person, this God-man named Christ and forgiveness, and he is still not convinced that it could happen to him until a day he read Psalm chapter 34, verse 6, which says this, this poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all of his troubles. And there in his cell, he fell to his knees weeping. And he said, God, if you can forgive me, I want Christ. And by all accounts, since then, he has been a model prisoner. There have been numerous parole hearings because he's been such a model prisoner to consider letting him out of prison. Now, when he was sentenced, there Death penalty wasn't an option, or he probably would not be alive by now. But what's interesting is Berkowitz doesn't want out of prison. In fact, most of the, prison, most of the parole hearings that have been held, he has refused to go to, 
And other times where he has gone, he has sent letters of protest to the governor of New York saying, I, I, I don't want out. I don't deserve to be out because of what I did to all these innocent people. Now, I tell you that story because some of us don't think that a guy like David Berkowitz should be forgiven. Because we have a perception about the mag uh, majesty and the magnitude of God's forgiveness that is like this instead of like this. And you know what's at the root of that? I'm going to call it the I'm better syndrome. And this is connected with forgiveness. Because that's the main thing that makes it hard for us to forgive other people. It's I'm better than you. And here's how we think. What you did to me, I would never do to you or anyone else. And that's why I can justify not forgiving you. I'm better syndrome. You see, I, my guess is when you knew we were, uh, this morning, when you figured out we were going to talk about forgiveness, that for some of you, there was a picture of an individual that came into your mind. Someone who has done you a grievous wrong. It might have been three months ago, three years ago, or 40 years ago. And you already had your defenses up. I don't want to hear that I'm supposed to forgive him or her. And I don't know anything about your situation. I don't know anything about the wrong that was done to you. I don't know anything about this other person, but I know this much. That the thing that keeps you from forgiving is the same thing that would keep me from forgiving. Self-righteousness. which is just the other word for I'm better syndrome. I would never do that. You did, and so I can't get over that. And so Paul does this, he does us this great favor of linking our forgiveness with God's forgiveness of us. You see, Jesus says that there is a sin of unforgiveness. You remember that? Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. If you forgive others their sins, God will forgive you. If you do not forgive others their sins against you, God will not forgive you. Let that seep into your soul for a minute. That there is a, there is a connection that God makes between our forgiveness of others and God's forgiveness of us. Don't just blow by those verses and say, well, that doesn't mean what it looks like it means. Has it sunk into your soul? And now Paul says, I'm going to link that forgiveness of God with your forgiveness of others as well. Never, ever forget 
how God has forgiven you. There was an evening years ago when I was mad at Betty about something. And it was one of those aha moments because God spoke to me. And I could be the kind of person who can hold grudges with probably her more so than anybody else. Again, I think back to that, just we're thrust together. We live together so much. So this is the person closest to me. And God spoke to me that night, the essence of this verse. And he says, I have forgiven you of so much. You mean to tell me that you will not forgive her of so little? I've forgiven you of millions and you're going to hold on to one thing or your dozens or your hundreds in your married years? If you want to become a gracious and a repeat forgiver, I'm going to tell you the secret to that is to digest and read and reread the Word of God and get how much God sacrificed to accomplish your forgiveness. What he gave up. His son? To the brutality that he subjected him to? Those of you who have sons, would you do that? I wouldn't. And yet he did that for you. And he did that for me. How can we then not forgive those who have done so little to us in comparison? Christians can and do forgive because they have been forgiven. Now I know we're running out of time, but I have to I have have to touch on something else here because it makes a difference. There's a debate that has gone on for probably hundreds of years about whether or not forgiveness requires the other person to repent. And the debate is rooted in seemingly competing scriptures. So in the one, and Jesus has said, and Jesus addresses the issue of how frequently you forgive, in you know, Luke chapter 17. And, and he said, how often do you forgive? Every time the person comes and asks for forgiveness, to be forgiven. If that's seven times a day, you do it seven times a day. And so the argument is, he has to, she has to come and repent, and then I'll, I'll forgive. The problem with ending the discussion there is we see Jesus on the cross, right? And here are these soldiers at his feet who put him on the cross, who have tortured him, and he says of them to his father, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And there's no evidence any one of those men said to Jesus, please forgive me, I was wrong. Now, I think you can make a case for forgive even when they don't repent from that text and even from the other text, simply by assuming 
that Jesus didn't address all scenarios. He simply was talking about the person who's being bombarded by the other person, sinning against them, repenting, sinning against them, repenting, sinning against them. In other words, he, he was simply addressing the repeat nature of the sin, not who, how all it might be handled. And again, I think this is so important for us as husbands and wives because, you know, our, our spouses are going to do things against us that maybe they don't even know about it. Are, are you going to forgive them regardless of whether they come to you? What did Jesus do? That's where I go back to. What did Jesus do? By the power of the gospel, you and I have been forgiven. Through the gospel, we are called to forgive. And praise God, we don't have to try to pull this off on our own strength because the, the gospel gives us the power through the Holy Spirit in our lives to forgive. Now, as I said, I don't, I don't know about any one of you. I don't know about your situations. I just know that there are some of you that God is speaking to you right now. And he has been for the last 20 minutes saying, Karen, Samantha, Robert, Tim, there's somebody you've got business with. You need to get right with. And the offense might be grievous. It might have been awful. But really, that much worse than all of your offenses and my offenses against a holy God? You see, when, when somebody sins against me, we're just sinning against another sinner. When I sin against you, I'm just sinning against another sinner. But when I fail to love God supremely, with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, I, 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 I sin against someone who has no flaws. And that makes the nature of the sin far more grievous. And so as we close, I, I want to pray for you if there's business to take care of. Father, you know every heart, everyone here, every situation. You know the situations where there's some imprisonment, where the person has not released the other person from the account that they owe and they themselves are as some of these statements say we do create a prison for ourselves too a prison of bitterness resentment unforgiveness a kind of a toxicity that affects all of our life all of our relationships we try to avoid places that we think that person might show up at. and There's all kinds of downsides to this unforgiveness. And so my prayer is that you would continue. Don't let anyone go that you're speaking to today about forgiving another. Don't let them go until they have followed your exhortation to forgive as they've been forgiven. Don't let them go. May your conviction be both forceful and sweet. And then would you provide them with the Holy Spirit power to do what they feel they cannot do. And that the testimony of that to both the other individual and the watching world might have profound impact for people seeing the wonder and the glory of the gospel 
and its effective work in people's lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name.